All right, we're going to read from First uh, Timothy chapter 2, the first 10 verses. Let's hear the word of God. I urge them that, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, and telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And ending at verse 10, the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. Um, If you use the app on your phone or your tablet, uh, the Lectio app, which gives a a series of readings and prayers for each day, 24-7 prayer, run that up. If you do that, you will have been giving thanks yesterday for something that happened on the same date in 1727. Count Nicholas Ludwig Zinzendorf called together a group of refugees who had settled on his land in a village that they had built there named Hernhut, which means the Lord's Watch. He called them to the church there which they had built on his land. And he addressed them very specifically about the division and bickering that was going on among them. These people were refugees. They had left other places to come here. Um, But rather than being kind of thankful and grateful for where they were, they'd been spending their time fighting amongst themselves. And he he called them together in the church that day, and he pleaded with them to stop bickering and fighting among themselves. And as he was engaged in doing that, the Holy Spirit came. Zinzendorf describes what happened in these words. The Savior permitted to come upon us a spirit of whom we had hitherto not had any experience or knowledge. Hitherto, we had been the leaders and helpers. Now, the Holy Spirit himself took full control of everything and everybody. Two weeks later, after that day, 13th of August, 1727, two weeks later, 24 men and 24 women covenanted together to pray day and night And that prayer meeting which began as a result of that covenant of 24 men and 24 women, each taking one hour of the day and praying throughout that day and then handing over to the same group of people to do it the next day and so on, that prayer meeting lasted for over 100 years, unbroken. Now, if any of you have had the privilege of studying medieval history, why would you want to do that? I understand. But if any of you are geeky enough like me to have studied medieval history, you will have heard of the Hundred Years' War, 1337 to 1453. France and England managed to fight each other for 116 years. Nothing really happened as a result of it, but it went on for 116 years. 
And if you study medieval history, you will know about the Hundred Years' War. You might not have, but even yet you might know that there was a Hundred Years' War. But I'm guessing that you never heard of the Hundred Years' Prayer Meeting until now. And here's the thing. I wonder which of those two 100-year events actually made a bigger impact on the continent of Europe. These people gave themselves to intercession, to follow the command of the Scripture to pray. We read that command a moment or two ago, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. In this middle section of those verses that we read, Paul is dealing with stereotypical behavior on the part of men and women. And that is a kind of stereotypical behavior that, that leads to spiritual decline. If it's not addressed with women, he challenges about making how you look more important than who you are, okay? Realize this is a touchy subject, probably shouldn't go here, but hey, it's in the text, all right? As N.T. Wright translates the verses, this is what it says. In the same way, women too should clothe themselves decently, being modest and sensible about it. They should not go in for elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Instead, as is appropriate for women who profess to be godly, they should adorn themselves with good works. Now, do I want to buy my fiancé an expensive dress? Yes. Would I like to spend money on perfume or a nice set of earrings or some expensive underwear? Yes. He is not saying that you shouldn't have nice things, okay? What he is saying is that who you are is more important than what you wear. And you need to get that right. And if you don't get that right, then it's not going to work in Christian terms. That's all he's saying. There isn't only women maybe that need to hear that. These women have wealth, okay? Otherwise, he wouldn't address them in this way. They have wealth, and they live in Ephesus, probably. That's where this letter, that's where Timothy was working. They live in Ephesus, and you will probably know that in Ephesus, there was the cult of Diana, which was worship of a female goddess. And the reality of that, because not only was it worship of a female goddess, but all the people who worked in the temple and who served there were women. And it gave women a conspicuous and prominent place in society in Ephesus that perhaps they didn't have elsewhere. So what happened when they became Christians? They were still wealthy. They were still conspicuous. So Paul said, okay, be conspicuous, not by being ostentatious, but by taking what you have and using it to bless those who don't. Be more concerned about who you are than how you look. That's what he says. And then he challenges men about stereotypical behavior. What would that be? About disagreement and division. This is what I want. The men should pray in every place, lifting up holy hands with no anger or disputing stereotypical male behavior as was noted yesterday in Castle Rock, especially after they've had a few drinks. As it was in Saxony in the 18th century, so it had been in Ephesus in the first century. Men falling out, fighting, disagreeing. And Paul challenges men to turn from bickering and division to unity in prayer for others. That's the message. So he's challenging stereotypical behavior on the part of women and men. As a result of that, he is calling the people to prayer. Now, 
when we look at a passage like that and think about intercession, for us, maybe intercession seems peripheral. But for Paul, it was central. Okay, really? Because it's not the story we usually tell. Many of you, for example, will know the story of William Carey, the shoemaker who became the father of the modern missionary movement through his work in India, to which he went in 1793. And it's generally held to be the case that certainly so far as English missions and international missions going from uh, England overseas, William Carey was the father of that movement. He was inspirational. He was the first. He was innovative. He was creative. He was an incredible person. And he himself made a massive impact on India. But everything William Carey did, every challenge he faced, every advance he made, may well have been down to a woman, his profoundly disabled sister, Polly, bedridden for 52 years, received regular letters from her brother and turned them to intercession. So who changed India? William Carey or Polly Carey? Oswald Chambers, in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, says this, the real business of your life is intercessory prayer. Prayer does not fit us for greater work. Prayer is the greater work. So what would it look like to be an intercessor? What would it mean to be an intercessor, to follow this call of Paul, to make this the first thing? Well, two things. The first one is this. It would mean that we would have to take a wider view we would have to take a wider view. We have a tendency, even in what little intercession we do do, to start with what we know and with what is around us. Our families, our friends, our colleagues, our country even perhaps. And then maybe when we have exhausted those things, we move outwards from there. Paul seems to be thinking that we should do this another way. We read these words. So then, this is my very first command. This is N.T. Wright's translation. This is my very first command. God's people should make petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings on behalf of all people, on behalf of kings and all who hold high office, so that we may, we may lead a tranquil, tranquil and peaceful life in all godliness and holiness. In the first verse, chapter 2 of his first letter to Timothy, Paul now turns to the reason for writing the letter. What does he want to say to Timothy about his work and leadership in the church at Ephesus? And the first thing he raises, the very first thing he raises, is the need for the church to get involved in intercession. And these prayers that he's calling them to have a universal focus so then, this is my very first command. God's people should make petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings on behalf of all people. Everybody. It's a massive canvas. And in a way, that shouldn't surprise us. There is a vision, a picture. In Revelation chapter 7, it's a picture. It's not 
It's, it's not liberal. It's, it's an artistic attempt to show what the church is really like. And, and in the middle of that description of the church, there is this phrase that talks about what you're looking at when you look at the church of Jesus Christ. Every nation, every tribe, every race, every tongue. That's what it is. It's pretty close to everybody that there is. Every nation, every tribe, every race, every tongue. That's the scope of the Father's heart. If I had the courage to get a tattoo, which I don't, but if I had the courage to get a tattoo on my arm here, I'd have those eight words. Every nation, every tribe, every race, every tongue. That's the measure of the Father's heart. So it's hardly surprising then that Paul says to the people in Ephesus, I need you to pray and I need you to pray for everybody. Every room I enter, every person I meet, every conversation I have, it's the scope of the Father's heart. All people. Paul says to Timothy, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Everyone is the scope of the kingdom and the scope of our prayers. And Paul says, we mustn't even let politics restrict our prayers. He said, when you pray for kings and those who are in high office and in Paul's day, that was maybe a bit different because most of the people he was writing to were unlikely to have any, any major element of influence in the pursuit of public affairs. It's different in the 21st century because we live in a democracy. So as soon as you start mentioning kings and those in high office, you enter the realm of opinions and preferences. Who we like and who we don't like. Why we like them and why we don't like them. I visited the United States a number of years ago, four or five years ago, for a sabbatical, I was staying with friends from Carnmoney who live in Philadelphia. I was there, I stayed with them for a week or 10 days. And while I was there, they were having their Bible study group from the church that they belong to in their home. And they said, you'll be able to come to it and meet all our friends, which was really cool. cool. While I was there, the, the presidential election was on, the campaign as a result of which Donald Trump was elected president. So Alan, Alan said to me, look, Come along to Bible study, enjoy it, get involved in it. One thing you cannot mention under any circumstances is in any way to mention Donald Trump or to hint for one moment that you are in any way critical of him. This is conservative, religious right, America, and my home will be burned down if you do. And isn't that the thing? Well, he didn't actually say that. I'm only making that last bit up. But they were pretty how shall I put it, committed to the Trump cause, let's say. And uh, I did actually bring it up and it didn't end that badly, but <laughs> I couldn't help myself, all right? But when we enter the realm of politics, that's what happens, isn't it? We all have opinions, we all have preferences. And like we, sometimes we nearly want to say that our opinions and preferences are, of course, close to the concerns and outcomes of the kingdom of God, which mostly they're not. The people, however, to whom Paul wrote... They, they didn't have a choice. Many of these powers and authorities were actually the enemy, not the friend. And yet he tells them that they are to pray for them because the scope of the Father's heart is all people, everyone. 
And that means that you and I need to start watching what is happening in our world and start praying about it. If you bought Pete Gregg's book, he gives four steps that are helpful to how you can construct a more logical prayer life. I'm not a very logical person, so I'll let you read what Pete has said. It would be much more helpful than me trying to say it, but it is there in the book if you want to read that in the chapter about intercession. But we can only intercede if we watch what is happening in our world. If we open our eyes and look out to see what is going on around us, the people, the situations, the circumstances... And when we do that, what do we find? It doesn't make intercession easier. It makes it 10 times harder. What do you pray for? What do you ask about the situations that face the world in our generation? Most of them are intractable problems. They've been around for ages. What do you ask God to do? How do you even know what God's will is? There's a story in the Old Testament about Hezekiah, king of, of Judah. His country is besieged by the armies of Sennacherib from Assyria and they are intending to destroy his country like they destroyed every other country that they moved against for the previous uh, years, decades. And they're at the gates of the city and they're telling all the people why they shouldn't listen to King Hezekiah because he's just a broken reed and if they depend on him, they're doomed and destroyed. And finally, just to stick the knife in and twist it a little bit more, they send Hezekiah a letter. Give up now or else. What does he do? It says he takes the letter into the temple. And he bows down in prayer. He spreads the letter out before the Lord. He spreads it out. Do you think God didn't know what was in the letter? Before it was written, never mind afterwards. But he doesn't know what to ask for. So he takes the letter into the presence of God and he spreads it out. He said, there it is, Lord. What are you going to do and what do you want me to do? And sometimes that's just about all that you can do. The front page of the newspaper with the horrendous story on it, the troubled email from a friend, the election communication that just dropped through your door. What are you going to do? Sometimes you don't know. You spread it out before the Lord. What do you want me to ask for? What can you do about this, God? What do you want me to do? We need a wider view. That doesn't make it easier. It doesn't mean we'll always know what to ask for. But if we don't see what is going on in the world, we will never be able to intercede for the needs of our generation and our time very first thing we need to do is to take a wider view. But the second thing we need to do if we're going to be intercessors is we need to stand in the gap. We need to stand in the gap. Prayer is more than just passing on information to God. As I've said already, don't you think he knows the information before I decide to go and share it with him? It says in the Old Testament, the psalmist says that before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. I don't even get the chance to tell God anything. Before I open my mouth, he knows what I'm going to say. So when I go to him and even don't say very much, but spread an email or a newspaper out in front of him, he knows all about it before I go. So the prayer can't be about me giving him information. 
What is it about then? Well, there's a clue to that because right in the middle of this passage, the apostle talks about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Jesus, the mediator, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, he says in 1 Timothy 2, 6. And Paul says, this is the gospel message. This is my message. This is what I was called to talk about. What am I called to talk about? Somebody stood in the gap between the race that was fallen and destroyed and the God who loved them with a broken heart. Somebody had to stand in the gap. And that somebody was Jesus himself, the mediator, the one who stood in between, who was God, but also a human being. And he is the only one who can do that. I'm not here to ask you to help Jesus mediate. He doesn't need our help. He already did that. He goes on doing that. He ever, he ever lives, the scripture says, to intercede for us. He doesn't need our help to do what only he can do. But that does mean, surely, that his example is a guide for my prayer life. To really intercede, you have to care about people and outcomes. It's what we would do in life what we would do in life. If there was something that needed us to do it, we would stand in the gap. I got a phone call one evening from a boys brigade leader in a previous church that I worked in. She had a son that was her adopted son. Uh, her husband had left her about a year or so before this and the son had been hard enough to control when the husband was at home but after he left and moved in with another woman about two streets away, the son became even more difficult and was always in trouble and if you're going to get in trouble, a little bit of advice, get in trouble with the law. Don't get in trouble with paramilitaries, okay? You'll always have a better outcome with the law than you will have with paramilitaries. He got in trouble with paramilitaries. And I got a phone call from this woman to say, they're going to, they're, they've told me they're coming tonight. He used to be at home at a certain time. They're coming tonight to collect him and kneecap him. Can you help me? <laughs> I knew that the commander of one of the local organizations would be drinking with the crews the club at the football club. So I went round after the evening service, respectably dressed in a suit, shirt, tie, overcoat. It was a cold winter's night. And I went in and I asked for this individual who didn't drink in the ordinary bar with everybody else. He was drinking in the room at the back where all the rest of the hoods drank. And so he said, I'll go and get him and bring him out to you. And they got him and brought him out to me. And we're standing in the foyer uh, of this, this building and I'm pleading with him. I'm standing in the gap between this teenager whom I know and his broken-hearted mum and this guy who leads an organization that I despise. I despise everything about it and I despise everything about him. But I'm standing in the gap. Don't need to tell you the rest of the story. It had a good outcome. But that's the thing. In ordinary life, you would do it. Maybe you've done it yourself, perhaps not in a, in, a, in a situation quite like that, but in other situations, maybe in work, you've taken somebody's part, you've tried to help them with a, a boss who is being unreasonable. You've, you've stood in the gap for someone. That is intercession. That's what it actually means. And you see it in Moses In the story of the 
children of Israel being freed from Egypt and making their way towards the promised land. They get to Sinai where they meet with God and where the commandments are given. Moses is up the mountain. While Moses is up the mountain, down in the valley, the people are committing idolatry in the most crude and horrible way. And it becomes obvious <coughs> what is going on. And eventually, God breaks up the conversation. He turns to Moses and he said, I've seen these people and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. And Moses says, no. Oh no, you won't. You won't make me into a great nation and you will not destroy this people What are all the nations going to say about you? What kind of a God are you? You brought people out of Egypt. You couldn't set them free. You're not going to do that. And I'm not going to leave here to let you do that. He stood in the gap. I once heard a speaker at a conference say that when Moses heard God speak, he returned to God in a manner something like this. He said to him, no, 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 that's not you. I know you. That's not you. You're not going to do that. He stood in the gap. He reminds God of how this will look. And he refuses his own promotion in favor of the people who were down in the valley right now rejecting his leadership. He stood in the gap. Maybe if we stopped fighting with people and started standing in the gap for them with the Lord, big things could be achieved. And who knows, when the history of the human race comes to be seen from an eternal point of view, how often the key things that happen in history happened when people stood in a gap. Could it be that the Good Friday Agreement that brought us a measure of peace and security and normality to this society was in fact not so much the product of the politicians who negotiated it, as it was the product of people like Gordon Wilson and others who stood in the gap. If you're going to become an intercessor, if this church and this people are going to become the kind of people Paul is calling us to be, then the first thing is we need to get a wider view. We need to start looking around us at the world that's out there. We need to stop fearing it and shutting our eyes off from it. We need to see what is really happening. And although that doesn't make it easy for us to figure out, well, what I do about that, what I ask God for here, we'll at least go and spread it out before him and give God the option of answering us. And then we need to stand in the gap between people and the purposes of the Lord. We need to care And we need to be concerned about outcomes. We're not just asking for something and hey, que sera, sera. We're working and protesting and arguing with the Lord for for better outcomes for the world and for the people for whom we care and for whom we're standing in the gap. That's what intercession means.